Okay, well, what in your mind is the biggest misconception about uh, uh, sports uh, agents and, and what would be maybe the most accurate portrayal of sports agents? Well, like any group, I think it's impossible to make a blanket statement about it. I mean, agents have a very negative reputation because there are a lot of really bad agents out there. Uh, and when I say bad, a lot of them are not very competent. They're not they don't they don't know the collective bargaining agreement. They don't know the rules. Uh, they're not training negotiators. Uh, a lot of them have uh, severe ethical lapses. You know, and because the union doesn't have the resources in football, that means the NCAA on both sides of the table. The NCAA can't police the rampant cheating that's going on in college sports and football and basketball. That's why you have the O.J. Mayo situation. You know, what happened at Ohio State? What's happening in Miami? And the unions who regulate the agents really don't have the police force, if you will, to, uh, to regulate it. So it's like it's become like the Wild West. Um, uh, and because of that, I think the agents generally have gotten the worst reputation possible. And you have pieces like 60 Minutes <clears throat> with Drew Rosenhaus, who I find comical, you know, uh, you know spending 15 minutes self-promoting himself. You know, um, and and it's, it's, it's what you expect. For me... You know, I, I try not to get you know, hung up in, in the broad brush of how people feel. I think I have my own reputation. I think I march to my own drummer. Uh, you know, I, I consider myself a dinosaur. And I want to do it. I'm old-fashioned. I'm old-school. I'm going to continue to do it my way. If I can't sign another player the old way, so be it. I, I can accept that. But um, I, I'm not going to change and do something I'm not comfortable doing. And I think, I, I think that I will attract the last five players who want to do it the old-fashioned way. I want someone who's brutally honest with them, who's not going to lie to them, tell them they can go higher in the draft than they can go, promise them things they can't deliver, um, and, and who's going to be there because I'm going to have 10 guys. I don't have runners. I don't have recruiters. Junior people, it's me. The guy wants to be managed by me, and I feel it's the right fit, but I'd love to do it. Um, that's how I felt about Evan Turner. Got Evan Turner because we were the only people in the country telling him to go back to school when he was a sophomore. Everyone else told him to come out. And he didn't feel he was ready to come out. He was a very mature young man. And I think he just, more than anything, appreciated the honesty. There's not a lot of honesty. I'm not here to say that I'm the only honest person in the country. I don't want to sound like a megalomaniac, but I think that the competitive pressures in the business force some very good people to do things that they're not comfortable doing to get clients. I've said many times, if LeBron James would come to me out of high school and said, I'll sign you if you paid me a dollar, I wouldn't pay him. Because once you pay a person a dollar, it puts you in a different class than people that don't pay. And I think that to make the kind of decisions that I've had to make with clients over the years, I mean, I had recommended to Kevin Tapo not to marry a woman 48 hours before his wedding because she wouldn't sign the prenup. Um, you know, I had to tell Lonzo Morning to turn down the first $100 million contract in sports. Was too long and too much deferred money. You know, I've had to tell Michael Jordan some very, you know, hard things. He got involved in gambling situations. And I think if that, in those instances, if they don't trust you, then you've lost the game. When you pay them up front, they don't trust you. And you've lost the trust before you start, so you might as well, you might as well not play the game. And that's just, that's just an unfortunate reflection of where we are in 2011 in the sport. And I feel more sorry for the players 
forget who, when they're very young and needy, and they get bamboozled into signing with people who really can't help them, and they start the career off on the wrong foot and make terrible decisions. I feel sorry for them. I don't want to represent you know 100 players. I don't want to represent 50 players. I don't want to represent 20 players. You know, but I'd like to see the competency of the industry improved, uh, and that's only going to happen when the union steps in. Uh, they finally got go Jake Mayer cheating, you know, being paid instead of instead of suspending some junior guy in the office, you suspend the guy who owns the business because he's responsible. That's exactly what's going to happen at Penn State now with Joe Paterno. It's interesting to see what the NCAA does. We have criminal activity on the campus with a legendary coach who I have great respect for. I always think the buck stops at the top. David, when you negotiate a deal. How do you define success? It's a great question. I'd say that, I'd say to negotiate a successful deal, both sides have to come away with a deal that works for them. You know, if you, if you do a deal that's too one-sided, unless it's a lifetime deal, it's going to come back and haunt you in round two. And so when I was young, and I, I teach this when I teach negotiations, both at college, college level and law school, you know, Negotiations is not a zero-sum game. One side wins and one side loses. One of the biggest problems in collective bargaining, as we sit here today, 36 hours away from the deadline, losing what I think would be losing the season, players, the players' mentality, players are conditioned. They only have two outcomes when you play a game. You either win or lose. There's no ties in basketball. This isn't soccer. You know, there's no ties. So you either win or you lose. In negotiations, nobody wins. In an ideal situation, nobody loses. One person may get you know, a richer part of the deal because they have more leverage, but no one should lose in the negotiation. Um, so a successful negotiation is when... I, I look at negotiation, George, as a process. When people say, what is negotiations? Negotiations is a process of finding creative solutions to business problems. It's not just simply about making money. Um, bringing two parties together who have different needs and different wants and try to bridge the gap. Uh, I think I'm a very creative person, and so I try to find creative solutions to problems. I think that if you feel there's only one way to do the deal, I think it's very hard to very hard to bridge the gap. But I think you have to, have to have a realistic assessment. One of the great things my mom taught me when I was probably eight years old she knew I wanted to be a lawyer. She told me that a great lawyer understands his opponent's case better than his own. Um, it's, it's like saying that a great coach who's done his scouting understands how their team can play as well as his own team so he can adjust during the game to changes. And I've always tried to really prepare and understand what does the other side need to make the deal, what are the other side's strengths and weaknesses, and how can I make that work you know, for my client. I think that in the current negotiation, I don't think either side did a very good job of doing that, of ascertaining, identifying really what, you know, what's needed. I think the players, to come out and suggest that the league wasn't losing money, you know, when they audited financial statements, uh, I, I, don't think, I don't think that was a good play. I, I probably would agree, if I studied the financial statements, there probably some aspects of the losses that I would, that I would challenge. For example, depreciation, which is a non-cash expense. I would probably challenge what they call related party transaction, where the owner owns the arena and he owns the team. Perhaps he's charging an above-market rent 
to the team because he wants to show that he's making money, or a media company that owns the team and perhaps they're not paying market value television rights to the team because they're trying to be more successful. It may be 20, 20, 25% losses. You might want to agree really aren't losses, but to suggest that there are no losses, you know, I think is foolish. Um, I, I think I think that it could have shortened the period of time, you know, had there been a little more good faith on both sides. And that's, in my world, as aggressive as you want to be, I think you still have to maintain the kind of relationships that enable you to make deals. You don't want to inject your personality to the extent you can't you can't make the deal. And you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm highly motivated. You know, people say aggressive. Um, I think I'm ambitious. Um, I want to be satisfied that I'm making a good deal for my client, but you have to be mindful of what the other side needs to make a deal. David, I'd like to, with your permission, just ask you three closing questions. And one of them would be, if you could invite any five people in the history of the world to dinner, who would they be and why? Great question. Well, probably one would be Bill Gates. I've never met Bill Gates. We actually invited when Michael was playing in Seattle during the finals. Uh, Bill Gates invited Michael and his wife and myself uh, to come to dinner at his brand new home, uh, which is supposedly you know, state of the art. It was Juanita Jordan's birthday, so Michael said he couldn't come. I said, Michael, come on. And he has a birthday every year. This is like a very unique opportunity, but we didn't go. And I have great respect for Bill Gates. I think he's one of the you know, innovators in America in the last hundred years. Um, he'd certainly be one. Uh, Colin Powell probably another. And he's been successful in the military you know, side, on the, on the civilian side. Uh, he's one of the most respected African-American you know, people in the world. Um, uh, someone, someone I always, always had a, a desire to meet. I wouldn't say I'm you know, scientifically oriented, so probably wouldn't be necessarily interested in meeting a doctor or scientist. Um, I've never met Tiger Woods, ironically. Michael's right, I've been with Tiger Woods four or five times, but there's always a large group of people. Uh, I'm a huge Tiger Woods fan. Uh, I'd love to meet Tiger Woods. I don't think there's been an athlete in the last 25 years that's closer to Michael Jordan than Tiger Woods. Big, I'm a golfer. I love, love to play golf. I love to play golf with Tiger Woods. I actually called Mark Steinberg a couple of years ago when we were playing here in Washington. I said, look, yeah, I know he's very busy, but it was possible. It, was, it wasn't the U.S. Open. It was a minor tournament. I'd love to have a drink with him at dinner. It just it didn't work out. So Tiger Woods is certainly you know, a person I, I'd like to meet. Obama is a person I, I've been dying to meet since he got out of office. Mm-hmm. I'm friends with Rob Emanuel and his brother, Harry. There's a, there's a guy who went to do Reggie Love, who's sort of this, this guy. Um, and uh, I voted for Obama. I think Obama is, uh, you know, as a guy who got dealt a really tough hand. Um, and, uh, he's classy, he's presidential, uh, he's a sports junkie. Uh, it'd be a great honor. I've met, I've met a few presidents, I've met Clinton a few times. I'd love, I'd love to meet Obama. That's probably my top four. I'm not sure there's any third person off the top of my head. Probably a lot of, them, a lot of people I'd like to meet. I've been very fortunate because of the people I've worked for to have a chance to meet Bill Clinton, you know, George Bush, George H.W. Bush, you know, some presidents. I've met the heads of most major companies in America. Something I never would have imagined when I was a lawyer. You know, I just you know, I say to people, think about it. If I was a lawyer working at a big law firm and I called up Tiger Woods agent and said, I'd like to meet Tiger Woods, say, you know, Step in line, there's like 4,000 people you know, ahead of you. 
with the call to say, hey, I'm a, I've been involved with Michael Jordan, John Thompson, Coach K, these are my clients. You know, people give you access that you would not otherwise have, and that's a very special gift for me. I've, I've, I've had a whole education from very bright people that I never thought in my wildest imagination I had a chance to meet. Wild dream. David Falk, elected president of the United States. What would you do uh, to turn the economy around and restore American people's uh, confidence in government? Great question. Well, ironically, I'm an economics major at college, and uh, while I don't claim to be Ben you know, Darkey or, or Paul Samuelson, I, I believe I believe the single biggest problem we have in America in the economy today. The single short-term problem is obviously jobs, but the single biggest problem is that there's never been a time in the history of the country when there's been a greater concentration of wealth at the top. The top 1% of people probably own 60% of the assets in America. And I think that's a very dangerous development because I think that if you put middle-class people like my parents, you know, they'd be struggling to, to raise their family in today's environment with health care and just the general cost of living. I think that wealthy people have to pay more taxes. They have to share. That's, that's what they called in the old days, no bless or bleach. And all these Republican candidates that keep saying that we need to cut spending but we shouldn't raise income is ridiculous. We need to do both. We do need to cut spending. Government is by definition inefficient. Uh, but I think that we have to um, we have to increase the tax burden on ultra-wealthy people who can afford it. Um, and I think and I think we need to do my biggest disappointment with, with, with Obama's presidency to date is that while I applaud his efforts to streamline the health care system, I think the number one priority from day one should be job creation. And the things that he talked about in this campaign, infrastructure, you, know, you look at you look at what brought us out of the depression, it was it was government involvement. Tennessee Valley Authority, the WPA is building buildings and infrastructure that puts people to work. And I think we need to take our resources in America um, and create much more infrastructure. Um, I think that I think we, we have diverted an enormous amount of resources to two wars um, during the Bush administration. Um, that, well, I think that the the challenge of terror is one of the greatest threats facing America today. I'm not sure that we get out of the war. I'm not sure we're going to have accomplished. That's what worries me. I'm not sure that all the hundreds of billions of dollars we spent, um, that we're going to have accomplished a great deal because the war is religious-based. And I think it's very difficult to solve a religious-based war militarily or, or politically. Uh, the British were in Afghanistan. The Russians are in Afghanistan over the last hundred years. No one's been successful doing that. Iraq, I look at Iraq, Iraq's really not a country. Iraq is really three countries. The British you know, put three people together that are exactly the most hospitable neighbors. They said, you all have to live together in the same house. And you know, they've been having a dispute since 700 AD. You know, who's the rightful heir to Muhammad? I don't think the United States is going to walk in and solve that question ever. You know, or I don't think the Chinese could walk in and do that. And so I think. I think that today, to go back to your very first question, this may be way off base, but if I had a seat of the pants opinion, it would be that the amount of our deficit 
is probably very close to the exact amount of money we really spent in Iraq and Afghanistan since 2003. If we would have invested that money in infrastructure in America, I think we'd be in a dramatically different place economically than we are today. And I think that Obama assumed the presidency, it would have been impossible for him to pull the plug. Even if he wanted to, they would have said the typical Democratic president, soft on, soft on defense. You know, so they now he stayed in there and they criticized him for the prolonging the war. And that's what's wrong with politics today, is that we've lost a sense of commonality. I think the Republicans are more intent to take down the Democrats than they are to solve problems. The Democrats think the same way. They're more intent to beat the Republicans than they are to solve the problem. And I think that we've become so polarized as a country more than any time in my 61 years on this earth that it's scary to think that we can come together. You know, I, to put it at the extreme, <laughs> is I think that if, if on the eve of the budget, crisis, are we discussing how to prevent the country from going to default? I think if Obama would have said, if we don't raise taxes, then the 10 most important buildings in America will be raised by terrorists next week. The Republicans would have said, hey, I can't raise taxes, I've signed the pledge. I think they become, I think we've become so ideologically stuck in our positions that we've lost the ability to, to think creatively. And I don't blame that on any one party. I'm not a party person. A lot of Republicans. I've never, I'm a Democrat. My parents were laborers, but they worked for unions. So I've always voted Democratic. But John Huntsman uh, is a friend, someone I know, supported as the governor of Utah. His father is a very dear friend of mine, John Huntsman Sr. Uh, a big fan of, of Mitt Romney's. I like him. I'm a huge fan of uh, Orrin Hatch, who I've gotten to know over the years. A big basketball fan, very conservative, more conservative than I am. But he ran for president of the market. Honest. Um, so I'm not a party person, um, but I think our country has become so polarized that it's a very dangerous, very dangerous place to be because we become gridlocked. Let, let's end on this one. When many years from now, when they close the curtain on David Falk's life, how do you want to be remembered? I like to be remembered as a person who is a um, devoted father. To his children, and as a person who really cared about his clients and gave everything he had to do the best job he could. David, thank you very much. My pleasure.